0: Sport's a great diversion from the pressures of life, or a, a novel that transports you to a place you might never go among people you're never likely to meet and gives you thoughts you might never likely have had. But when tragedy and great suffering come into your life, there's pain that no football grand final or booker prize winner can distract you from. When you're robbed of something very, very dear, a house or a person, then you groan in anguish. It's just too immediate and all-encompassing to be easily distracted. Such was the experience for the remnant of the Israelites in 587 BC. We saw in that reading from Two Kings how uh, come the, the early 6th century BC, uh, Israel is under the power of Babylon. Babylon are the superpower of the region at the time. And the, the king of Babylon, sorry, the king of Israel has actually been put in position by the king of Babylon and he's meant to give him homage. But it, uh, what happens is after 10 years as king, Zedekiah decides to rebel in response to you read it there. Nebuchadnezzar sends his army to invade Judah. They destroy all its towns and villages. Then they besiege Jerusalem. The siege lasted. You, you had to be good on your maths there. It lasts for 18 months. And how bad things must have got in the city. The end of food supplies, starvation, death. In the Book of Lamentations, it leads to cannibalism, uh, disease. Finally, in 587, as we read, the Babylonians break through Jerusalem's walls, invade the city. The army flees, but they're all rounded up and caught. Many are killed. Those who aren't killed are marched off on a 1,000-mile journey to exile in Babylon. Only a few, mostly poor, survivors are left behind in Judah. The prophet Jeremiah among them Um, Some of those, many of those people end up shifting to Egypt as refugees. And as for the city itself, well, its palace and houses are burnt, its walls smashed to the ground, and its glory, the temple, is defiled, looted and burnt. All that remains of the nation and the house that bore God's name is smouldering ruins and rubble. And is it anyone, Uh, wonder that the people that are left are just stunned by this about turn. They were God's people. They were the apple of God's eye. And now, well, let's hear Sumi come up and read from Lamentations chapter 1. The book of Lamentations is a set of five poems reacting to the destruction Of Jerusalem. It's full of other people's pain and needy anguish. You've heard of compassion fatigue. Well, we can have that, can't we, with other people's suffering. When looking to relax, many of us look to movies. They're a blessing of modern life. And with Netflix or Stan or other services, there's a lot of choice. Too much, really, when you waste half an hour of your watching time trying to decide what to watch. What do you feel like watching is a regular question. And when tired or fatigued, it's easy to say something light and fun, not too heavy, not too taxing. Well, we can do that with our own Bible diet as well. So something depressing like lamentation stays off the menu year after year. But that that actually is to rob us, I hope you'll see over the next three weeks, Doing that robs us of an opportunity for growth and strengthening because let's face it, life is hard. We all have experiences of suffering and some of them are just really, really hard. So let's feel the pain of Israel from early in the 6th century BC and see what we can learn. We're looking at how that pain is expressed here in chapters 1 and 2 today. Chapters 1 and 2 are acrostic poems. That means uh, each verse starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, we've got 22 verses. And we can't see it in our English translation, of course, but it tells you that a lot of thought has gone into lamentations. Being poetry, there's repetition So it won't do for me to go verse by verse. I'm going to pick up some of the verses and hope you'll think I do justice to the whole. But you're welcome to ask me later or email me about a particular verse. One more thing to notice about the poems. There are two speakers in chapters one and two. But before I introduce you to the two speakers, I want to give you a moment, if you want, to stand up, turn around, whatever, because I know the chairs can get uncomfortable, and I meant to give you that moment. Anyone want to? Somebody, lead the way and the rest will come. At home in Zoom, you're welcome to stand up too. You can, at home, do all sorts of odd things that we can't see. Alrighty, take your seats again, please. So, two speakers in chapters one and two. One is the narrator or poet But then the poet puts words in the mouth of a desperately distraught, dejected and dismayed woman. She isn't a single human. It's like when a a ship is given a woman's name. Here we have the city of Jerusalem represented as a grieving woman. The people or the former people of Jerusalem are her children. I think that's really clever of the poet, don't you? It really helps us to feel the pain more than I think if we just stayed with the poet's observations and descriptions. What's this woman's name? Well, the poet calls her daughter Zion. You might have noticed that in verse 6 of chapter 1. But it's clear that daughter or lady Zion, as I'm going to call her, is the city of Jerusalem. Verse 7, in the days of her affliction and wandering, Jerusalem remembers all the treasures that were hers in days of old. When her people fell into enemy hands, there was no one to help her. Lady Zion's pain is caused by a mixture of things through these chapters. Destruction of the temple and other major buildings, demolition of the city walls, starvation in the siege, slaughter by the sword, exile of the best and brightest. All of those things are weaved into the poems Verse 16 is one example of the, the pain that results. This is why I weep and my eyes overflow with tears. No one is near to comfort me, no one to restore my spirit. My children are destitute because the enemy has prevailed. And what really rubs stinging salt into her wounds is that those enemies who prevailed also mock her. The poet observed it back in verse 7, but he remarks on it to Lady Zion in chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 15. All who pass your way clap their hands at you. They scoff and shake their heads at daughter Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? All your enemies open their mouths wide against you. They scoff and gnash their teeth and say, we have swallowed her up. This is the day we've waited for. We have lived to see it. If I was Lady Zion, I don't think I would have needed the poet to rub it in like that. The lady's pain is amplified by a deep truth that lies behind all of Lamentations, a deep historical truth, and the poet states that truth early in the first poem at verse 5 of chapter 1. Her foes have become her masters, her enemies are at ease. The Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. And the lady herself, well, she gets it, verse 14. My sins have been bound into a yoke. By his hands they were woven together. They've been hung on, his, on my neck. The Lord has sapped my strength. And verse 18, the Lord is righteous, yet I rebelled against his command. Was it fair of God to allow the Babylonians to destroy Judah and Jerusalem? Well, yes. It was actually all arranged centuries earlier in the covenant, Uh, this people, Made with God. When they became a nation under Moses, the covenant between themselves and God was set out in the book of Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy chapter 28, there's these curses for breaking the covenant with God. And they're listed like warnings at the time of Deuteronomy. And among other things, is this chillingly accurate promise at verse 36 of chapter 28 of Deuteronomy. The Lord will drive you and the king you set over you to a nation unknown to you or your ancestors. There you'll worship other gods, gods of wood and stone. You'll become a thing of horror, a byword, an object of ridicule among all the peoples where the Lord drives you. We can think that God is a bit harsh here, a bit rough. We can picture him as like an overtired father really losing his temper with the kids. You know, that petulant and uncontrolled anger that fathers are sometimes guilty of. We can picture 587 BC as like that. But remember, God has been warning them for years through the prophets come back, stop worshipping the idols. Stop mistreating the poor and defenceless in your society. Repent and return to me. It's gone on for decades like that. God, harsh? Well, no, the question's not really why did God punish them, but why did he take so long to punish them? The Bible tells us that one of God's wonderful traits is that he's slow to anger. And aren't we glad of that? He's slow to anger and looks to forgive. He kept giving them chances, but a point came when they'd run out. They'd run out of chances. What's the lesson for us in this exile of God's people? Well, first thing is a warning against presumption. The sin of presumption is something the Israelites were guilty of, they thought they were fine. They had their temple, their city, their prosperity. They were the people of God and they took it for granted. They presumed he'd be content to be marginalised, domesticated in their national and their personal lives. They'd be okay because after all they were the descendants of the big names, Abraham and Moses and David. They were safe. We can fall into that sort of way of thinking too can't we through belief in Jesus we have the new covenant featuring ongoing forgiveness of all our sins and a relationship with God as his children it's going to last all the way to eternity but we can wander from the Lord and live our lives so in line with the idols of our culture that at some point We've moved away from the Lord, no longer trusting in Christ. It's possible to be Christian in name but to not really live for Christ, to be presumptuous that God will always forgive no matter how we live our life. Looking at what happened to the people of Jerusalem, that can be a warning for us, can't we? Make sure the profession of your faith is matched by your life. You know, the risk of presumption is one of the reasons why in our Anglican church tradition we regularly confess our sins. To pause and acknowledge to God where we haven't lived his way and then ask again for his forgiveness, that's a really concrete way to remember our status as God's children, that it's all due to his grace and that the only fitting response to grace is trust and obedience. So it's a good thing that we regularly Uh, have a confession in our services. Lady Zion and her children were guilty of presumption and sin and they eventually incurred God's wrath for that. In her lament, however, Lady Zion pleads with God to exercise justice toward her enemies as well as her. It wasn't like Babylon was righteous an angel, of the a righteous angel of the Lord's judgment. No, Babylon was a brutal nation that worshipped pagan gods. One of the big shocks of the exile for Israel was that God would use a pagan nation to apply his judgment to his people. Surely they shouldn't be allowed to get away with sin. You see the shock when Sumi was reading some of those verses about the fact that the The foreigners, the invading nation, actually were in the temple, actually went into God's holy place. They walked all over it. It's hard for the Israelites to get their head around that. It's upsetting. And so Lady Jerusalem, Lady Zion, pleads in verse 21 of chapter 1, people have heard my groaning, but there's no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my distress. They rejoice at what you've done. May you bring the day you've announced so they may become like me. Let all their wickedness come before you. Deal with them as you've dealt with me because of all my sins. Is it wrong for Lady Zion to be so vindictive here, to wish ill on someone else? No. In the Bible, there's a consistent theme that God's people should look to the Lord to vindicate them and judge their enemies. And this is another thing to learn today from the book of Lamentation. We know that Jesus promises to return and vindicate his people, his sheep, and reject and judge the goats who have not acknowledged his lordship or cared for his people. But we also know that Jesus bars us from seeking to be the instrument of vengeance. We are to wait patiently for the God's timing to vindicate us. These commands are are encapsulated really well, I think, by the words of the Apostle Paul at the end of Romans chapter twelve. I'm just going to read a little to you from Romans twelve verse seventeen. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. So you try to get on with everyone. But if someone consistently rejects or hurts you, don't seek to hurt them back. No, leave it in the Lord's hands. It's not for us to take vengeance against our enemies. But you will get justice in God's timing. We are to leave it to God. And that can be hard, I know, but it's good in it to know that there will be justice. The nations, that nation, Babylon, was going to receive its justice at God's hands from the Persians. 70 or so years later. As we're seeking what we can learn from Lamentations, I want to now make we've looked at, we've seen presumption to avoid that, we've seen justice to look for that. I want to make one thing clear that we don't learn. Lamentations is not a basis for saying that all suffering is the judgment of God. In Lamentations, Lady's eye on suffering is definitely the judgment of God. The sword is Babylon, but the warrior is God himself. And you really feel that. We didn't read it before, but if you later on read the first 10 verses of chapter 2, as the poet describes what happened in Jerusalem, the 10 verses, they're almost accusatory of God. In the 10 verses, there's 28 verbs. For what God has done to Jerusalem. I'm not going to read it all, don't worry, but I want to give you a sample from verse 4. Like an enemy, he has strung his bow, his right hand is ready. Like a foe, he has slain all who were pleasing to the eye. He's poured out his wrath like fire on the tent of daughter Zion. The Lord is like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He's swallowed up her palaces, destroyed her strongholds. He's multiplied mourning and lamentation for daughter Judah. He's laid waste. his dwelling like a garden. He's destroyed his place of meeting. The Lord has made Zion forget her appointed festivals and her Sabbaths. In fierce anger, he has spurned both king and priest, and it goes on. It's stunning, these 10 verses. Charge upon charge is piled up under God's name. You almost think, should he speak like this? Is this going too far to talk to God like that? There's no getting around the fact God has done this to Jerusalem. God is the author of this great suffering, which might raise the question, is all suffering God's punishment, to which the answer is a very loud no. It's no use reading Lamentations and ignoring the rest of the Bible on suffering. In the rest of the Bible, we know that suffering is part of the age we live in, and that's why we look for eternity with God when we're promised there'll be no more death, mourning, crying or pain. The only time we can definitely say that suffering is punishment from God is when we have a specific word from God, as we do in the Old Testament here concerning the destruction of Jerusalem. Without a specific word, you just can't equate suffering in this life with direct punishment of God aimed at the sufferer. Not to say that we think suffering is out of God's control. Suffering might be used by God to lovingly train us to trust and persevere with him more. And suffering might be a blessing to wake us up, that, to realise that we need God's help and we can't do things on our own, which has happened during this COVID-19 season for some people. Looking to God for help is actually one of the responses the poet urges on Lady Zion in chapter 2. And it's the final point I want to draw out of Lamentations 1 and 2 today. One of my goals in choosing the book of Lamentations for our Sunday sermons is to expose you to lament in the Bible. There's a whole lot of lament psalms, and not surprisingly they're sparked by this same event as sparked Lamentations. However... Most of our new Christian music falls under the praise and worship genre in the music catalogue. And so much of it is just fantastic, and I love it. But it'd be really dangerous to your spiritual life if you concluded that you must always be upbeat and praising God. I love the fact that the Book of Lamentations shows us that it's okay to have times when you are struggling so much that you. All you can do is lay out your grief, your struggles, even your complaints to God. The frankness of the language in Lamentations should persuade us that God is big enough to handle real feelings and your honest reaction to tragedy. He doesn't promise immediate answers to your Lamentations, but he is listening So that's why the poet urges Lady Zion to express her grief to those around her and to the Lord. You see it in chapter 2, verse 18. The hearts of the people cry out to the Lord. You, walls of daughter Zion, let your tears flow like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief, your eyes no rest. Arise, cry out in the night. As the watches of the night begin, pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to Him for the lives of your children who faint from hunger at every street corner. Notice the poet urges her to pray and request of the Lord for the lives of her children. I love that image of earnest prayer there in verse 19 pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. I don't know if I've ever prayed like that. Lady Zion's prayer, when she makes it, though, at the end of the chapter from verse 20, is a complaint to God. Really strong words. Let me give you verse 21 as an example. Young and old, lie together in the dust of the streets. My young men and young women have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered them without pity. Too often in our culture, people think that their criticisms of God's ways justify rejection, unbelief, atheism. But you don't see that in the laments of the Bible. People like those represented by Lady Zion, present their case to God and in really strong terms, as you've seen, but they never doubt that he is Lord and sovereign. They look for his answer. They even dare to hope. At the moment in Lamentations, Lady Zion is in too much pain. She's lost too much to be able to experience any hope right now, but hope will grow, as we'll see in Chapter 3. But for now, don't let me, by talking about hope, blunt the power of chapters 1 and 2. If you're suffering, present your request to God. Know that he hears, trust that he knows what he's doing, even if it doesn't feel like he does. And when you can't do any more than just present your struggles to God, when it's all too raw, then you need to ask your Christian brothers and sisters to pray for you. You know I started the service today, and I did it on purpose, with that great fridge magnet verse from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where Paul says, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Jesus Christ. How does that line up with this? How does that verse line up with lamentations? Rejoice always. You can't rejoice always, can you? And as for giving thanks in all circumstances, some things, what what can you give thanks for? Sometimes it's just too hard to do that verse, even though in your head you know you should, but in your heart you, you can't. What do you do? Well, That's when you need Christian brothers and sisters. That's when it's our job as the body of Christ to pray on your behalf. In men's mental health circles, there's a saying to encourage men who are struggling to talk to someone about what they're feeling. And the saying, you've probably heard it in other contexts, goes, a problem shared is a problem halved. And that is so true of people suffering as well. They suffer... We pray. And I hope you see that as a member of the body of Christ that meets here at St Mark's, that part of our role is to be praying for our brothers and sisters who are are suffering. Sometimes they just can't. The book of Lamentations is so real and gives us licence, I think, to be real with God. If you're in the situation of Lamentations we feel for you and we now we're going to pray for you. Let's pray, everyone.